This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yo, yo, what's up, y'all? Here we are. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Peter Agostin. This is The House List. And um, yeah, it's feeling good. I just hit my hand on the light. Uh, that's we're yeah, we're getting back into the swing of things, you know. Um, I have a really special guest on the show today, someone I've been working with for a few years now, uh, Olivia Gatwood, author, poet, uh, educator, touring artist, a friend of mine. We had a conversation here in LA. Uh, leading into her full national tour that she's on right now in support of her her sophomore book, Life of the Party, which is out right now. Um, Olivia and I go back, I mean, a little bit, a few years. I kind of uh, stumbled across her work uh, as a writer and as like a performing poet um, some time ago, and we started working together. So I work as her booking agent, coordinating shows for her, primarily here in the U.S., and uh, yeah, incredible artist and really kind of parallels a lot of the, the hip hop uh, folks that I've worked with over the years and especially the MCs. She's got a pretty creative mind that kind of comes from that world in a way and in some ways informed. So we, we kind of got into this casual conversation, but I wanted to kind of talk about her work and uh, her book that just came out, Life of the Party. But when we first started working together, she had just recently released her debut called New American Best Friend. Both are incredible. If you're kind of like not really a poetry, you know, pursuer, if you will, or you're entry level, uh, but you want to seek something out that's contemporary in that um, field, I would recommend Olivia for a lot of different reasons. Um, It's funny. It's personal. It's dark. And uh, especially her new book, which is a lot more macabre than her debut and definitely shows a lot of like growth as a writer and as a performer. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it out. Uh, It's me and Olivia. Before I go any further, though, um, I just want to let you guys know, as you know, like I took quite a long break with the show and now we're back. um, Thanks to the people at uh, Pantheon. So as the shows go by, I'm going to kind of articulate this a little bit more. Uh, but now I'm working with them. It's a great network uh, based here in California. Uh, they reached out and, and now uh, helping me kind of expand my shows quite a bit. So for the most part, you guys remember, longtime fans of the show, the, basically I, I hosted it on SoundCloud. The show still exists on, my, on the original SoundCloud page for the Houseless Podcast. But now um, through uh, Megaphone, basically, um, and the folks over at uh, the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is a network of all 
music oriented uh, interview shows and, and, and kind of documentary shows. You can catch the podcast uh, in a lot more places, including all of my previous episodes. So on Spotify, uh, Pandora, et cetera, as, as well as on Apple Podcasts and, and really anywhere. So I just wanted to make that disclaimer known. So now you can go back and listen to all the old episodes. I've made them available for download, too. So I'm really hoping that this opens things up quite a bit. Um and with that being said, listen, man, like I've been wanting to, to record uh, Olivia for a while. She's got an amazing podcast, too, that you might like or you might know somebody that likes. So you should definitely check it out called Say More. And um, yeah, man. So let's just keep it moving. And this is my conversation with the one and only Olivia Gatwood here on The House List. So, you know, I think maybe if uh, there's a way we can... I guess, as far as poetry goes and your work goes, uh, take it, you know, to where it, the very first kind of moment it started becoming, you know, something that you took seriously. I mean, that would be a great start. Okay. So, I hold the mic the whole time. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Now, these are the the unspoken rules. I know it might be a little aggressive, but... It's just old school. I, I mean, feel like who I'm do you think you're talking to? I am. Paper. Yeah. I mean, yes. In fact, the whole reason I do this is, you know, to keep me grounded, like as In if I was working also. for my high school newspaper. Okay. So, mm-hmm. I took poetry seriously from the moment I understood it. Okay. Because that's how I function. Anything that I feel a kinship towards, I immediately become obsessed with and take very seriously. Okay. So, but I didn't take it seriously as a career because no one tells you that poetry could be your career. However, I took it seriously as an art form because when I was introduced to it, when I was 10 years old, I was immediately like, this is how I understand how to communicate with the world. This is how I understand how to express myself. And so I have to learn everything about it. And then I started doing spoken word poetry when I was 16 which gave a new level of me taking it seriously because it was competitive. It was slam poetry. Yeah. So how do you even know that you could do something like that? I saw it on a state on at an open mic. Where? Well, first uh first a poet came to my middle school and did a presentation. What middle school did you go to? Jefferson Middle School in Albuquerque in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque Heights, is that what you're going to no, say? No, I was going to say Albuquerque High School. That was my high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to Albuquerque. I, I went to Jefferson Middle School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Right. And a poet named Hakeem Bellamy came to my seventh grade class and did a presentation on slam poetry. And I immediately understood it. Like I was, and it was weird because I'm not, I wasn't an extroverted child. I was not a performer. I didn't come from a family that pushed me on stages. Like, I'm not a dancer. I'm not a singer. So it's not that I was, like, attracted to the stage. It was, like, I just saw it and I was, like, oh, I understand exactly what that is. Because, and I don't know what it is, but when I first learned about poetry when I was 10, it was Shel Silverstein. Oh, yeah, of course. And his work is so rhythmic that every time I would read it I felt this need to read it out loud because it was like it's so rhythmic it needs to be like almost sung 
And so when I saw spoken word, I was like, oh, that's exactly what I thought is that poetry needs to be heard instead of read. And so when I saw this presentation, I was like, I totally get that. And then I was an athlete. I played soccer for like 15 years. And so I was like in the peak of my soccer career. And I was like, oh, I totally understand competition and numbers and scoring. That makes sense to me. So it was like this just like magical combination. And that's how they kind of broke it down? Like, Yeah. Okay. It was like it was like this game. It was like, oh, okay, right. you're going to be scored from 0 to 10, including decimal points. Drop the high score. Drop the low score. Add the 3 in the middle. Like, it was this whole thing. And it was like, it, it was just a game. And I was like, oh, I get that. And then I understand poetry. And so this makes sense. But then it wasn't until I was 16, so three years later, that I actually performed myself. Instead, I just went to open mics and watched performers and was like jaw-dropped the whole time. I thought they were magicians. I just thought it was amazing. Hmm. So then, and you started competing when you were 16, 16. so I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, what was that first one like? Do you remember where was yeah. that? My um, high, freshman of, my freshman year in high school teacher, English teacher, ran the poetry club and if you joined the poetry club, you could perform at this thing called Poets in the Pack. Po- pa- mm-hmm. The Pack was the Performing Arts Center. Oh, yeah. Okay. And this English teacher fought really hard for there to be one day out of the year where every class would go to the Performing Arts Center and watch poetry. So it meant that if you were a poet, you got the whole day off. You could just, you got like a hall pass basically to, to be in the Performing Arts Center the entire day to perform for all the classes. And honestly, what appealed more to me was just getting an entire day off school. So I was like, that's dope. I'm going to sign up. So I signed up and I wrote a poem about being catcalled and performed it for the school. And it was cool because you perform for all the periods, like one through seven, first period through seventh period. So first period was my first time ever performing on a stage. And afterwards, I like went up to my friends and was like, did you think I did good? And I remember one friend being like, you were kind of quiet, like, and your head was down. And then I was like, okay, next period, I'm going to lift my head up. Next period, I'm going to be louder. And then it was like by seventh period, I was like, oh, I fucking got this. So you did it seven times in I that day? seven times wow. in that day. Yeah. yeah. And it's a different audience every time. Yeah. Right. And it's your peers. It's your like, sure. and, and I remember like really liking it because I was performing about issues that mattered to me to people who had to listen. And I remember they encouraged, so something about like older school, it's not really happening much anymore, but back in the day in slam poetry, they encouraged the audience to have vocal reactions. So the audience could like, there was something called a feminist hiss, where if you heard, if a poet said something misogynist, you were encouraged to hiss. Mm. Or there was this thing called a grunt where, like, if you didn't agree with something someone said, you could grunt. And they encourage you to snap and stamp on the floor and whatever. Yeah, the snapping, I know. That's just, uh, like, it's just supporting something. That's just supporting something. Or when they say something dope, like, you kind of... Yeah. But so there were these other elements that were, like, if you disagree with something, you can be vocal. And the host of Poets in the Pack encouraged the audience to be vocal and of course it's high school students so they're going to do that and I did a poem about being catcalled and like called out misogyny and a group of water polo guys started grunting and you'd think that would be like 
the moment of like discouraging like oh my god I can't believe that happened to me but I was like oh my god I've made people mad like that means I'm doing something yeah okay so I was immediately like oh I am I warranted a reaction out of someone which means my work is effective so would you keep doing stuff at the high school then from that point I mean at 16 it's not like you can really start heading out but I know that you got once the that HBO thing happened, you were still like a teenager, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the youth poetry scene in Albuquerque was pretty abundant. Oh, really? And so I became like the sort of leader of the poetry club because that's my other thing is like I just have I just become obsessed with things and I have to like throw myself into them. I can't do anything casually. So like I immediately just became I quit soccer. I was like, this is me now. Like I do poetry. This is what I do now. And so I became really, really adamant about the poetry club. It was like all I did. It was where my friends were. It was like what I did. And then we would go as a high school and compete with other high schools in the state. And that was back when Albuquerque's, like I said, youth scene was like really abundant. Um, And then what happened from there is then there was a youth state competition and the winners of the state competition made up the team that represented New Mexico that would then go to nationals. Mm-hmm. So, so you went all over the state of New Mexico? We went all over the state of New Mexico. Like we, little towns and stuff? Yeah, we competed with students on reservations. Like, really? Yeah, like Native American schools. We competed in northern towns, like pretty much every town. Can you, can you describe some of those places? Yeah, there was like a town, there's a town called Silver City and it was like, Silver City is like a really small art town. So it was like, all these just like small town like artsy kids. I remember a lot of them like did graffiti. Um, there was like the kids on the reservation who were all writing poems about being young indigenous kids. There were rich kids. There were kids from like sure. other high schools in Albuquerque that were from really wealthy parts, and we had like it out for them. And we had this idea like, oh, they're not gonna have anything to talk about because they're from the fucking rich part of town, you know. So then. I made it to the top four. I won. I actually won the youth state competition, so I was the youth champion. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and that was the year. Yeah. So I won the youth competition. So what year are we talking about here? So that was 2010. Okay. I was 18 years old, and I was actually at a really weird age. So what ended up happening was I was at an age where I could compete for the youth. I had just graduated high school, so I could also compete for college. There was a college team, even though I wasn't in the college yet. And then there was also the adult city championships. And I competed for all three that year, and I won all three. I'm the wow. only person in the state of New Mexico to win all three. Oh, that's dope. Yeah. But I was also just at this age where I could compete for all three. Okay. Um, you qualified enough or something? Yeah, it was like it was like I was at this perfect, like I could compete for youth because I was just got out of high school. I could compete for college because I was about to go to college and I could compete for adult because I was 18. Was it that big of a, like, to, for not really knowing like the full like web of that, the level of all those scenes, like was there enough competitors like on all those levels, college and, and adult, I guess, out of college and stuff? Like, yeah, like there's not, I don't, you know, poetry is kind of cyclical, poetry communities, but... At that time, yes, there was a ton. There was yeah. like 30 kids in every competition, like 30 people in every competition. Right. Um, and that you can, would that be like for every state back then, at least? Like, yeah. This is like sort of the height of sort of slam poetry's like kind of zeitgeist and pop culture in yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, so there was a lot of people from every state. And so what happened is 
the youth team, the youth Albuquerque team went to the National Youth Poetry Slam, which is called Brave New Voices. And that year, HBO was filming the the final four. So they were filmed out of 72 teams or 72 cities there. um, They were filming the final four for this special on HBO. It's kind of like Deaf Poetry Jam. It was produced by Russell Simmons. Um, but it was for young people. So we like kind of accidentally made it to the final four. We didn't really think that was going to happen. So it was literally like we went from being like, oh, like I didn't even pack clothing that I to think about HBO. Like I was like, we're not going to make HBO. So I didn't even like pack for that. I didn't prepare for that. And then it was like literally we won our semifinal and HBO like producers came in and like whisked us away and we're like, Whoa. all right, we have to do all these interviews now. And we just like were thrown onto television. And it was like the first, it was insane. It was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, did they, did it register with you? Like, did they, did they get, you know, just cause it was sort of popping too. So like, did they kind of get where you were coming from or you're so young too at that point in time? Like, had you, do you feel like you had found your voice at that period of time or? No, like, I was pretty cocky. Like, I remember, like, thinking, like, I was the shit at poems. But, like, I actually, looking back, it was definitely my first exposure to, like, any amount of fame and or any amount of, like, public visibility. And I don't think they did enough at all to prepare us as, like... Because you're 18, especially if you're an 18-year-old girl, and your work is being put onto like a major television program like the amount of attention is insane and it's not all good like I got a lot of creepy messages also you're getting a lot of messages that are really nice but they're really like putting a lot of responsibility on you as a figure and as a role model and like nobody talked to us about that we were just like expected to be like this is amazing I'm so lucky oh my god tv but like TV's weird and TV's like a fake world. Like the filming of television shows is like, it's all just like, it's the editor's job to make it look like it was this thing that it probably wasn't. Well, yeah, especially for anything that's like reality based. Exactly. And so it actually was weird because they edited our poems. They edit, like we had obviously signed a release that said they could edit our poems for time, but they edited a lot of our poems in a way that we felt like robbed the meaning robbed them of the meaning so we had one poem where we compared the myth of la llorona which is like this myth in new mexico and other places of a woman who steals children from the river Mm -hmm. um and in new mexico it's used as a way of keeping kids out of the ditches because there's flash floods and a lot of kids drown so the way they keep you out of the ditches is they're like la llorona is going to get you if you walk on the ditch so we did a poem about comparing the myth of Laidona to heroin addiction in Albuquerque because a lot of young people are addicted to heroin and die of heroin. So we compared heroin to Laidona of stealing the souls of kids. And they edited out all the parts about heroin. Oh, wow. So when we watched it, it looked like we were just reading a poem about Laidona. And it, we were like, what the fuck? Like, it robbed the entire poem of its meaning. And we watched it. We all went... We were all just kids from the city. Like, none of us had experienced anything close to anything related to television, HBO. And we watched it in the lobby of a motel because none of us had... In Albuquerque? um, We were actually at a poetry competition outside of Albuquerque. I don't even remember where we were. In some Mm -hmm. tiny town. And we none of us had TV. And we were like, 
can we went to a hotel lobby and we were like we're about to be on tv can we watch ourselves and the attendant was like yeah turn it to hbo so we turned it to hbo and watched ourselves and we were all pissed we were like what the fuck is this yeah they took the most important part out yeah and then some of us were featured more than others like i was featured a lot more than my teammates which caused some resentment and like it's all edited to like make certain people favorites and make certain people not as visible when reality was we all had the same amount of stage time we all were equally as a part of this thing but leave it to television to make certain people the villains and make certain people you know yeah so it was actually pretty hard to deal with and it kind of broke us apart as a team Mm. because it added this ego to something that was so pure before that like before that, there was definitely ego, but it wasn't ego between us. It was like we were a team and we competed against other teams. Yeah. And now it was like we're competing within each other to see who can be the most famous. Yeah. And it was weird for it to be 18 and dealing with that. It sort of reminds me of that thing that I went with you to at the Ace Theater. It was really similar to that. <clears throat> so that was like all young, pretty young kids, like high school kids, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was basically the same thing. Just HBO wasn't filming. Yeah. So and that the layout was the same where it was like each high school seemed to have one representative or multi, if they were really big schools, they had a couple or mm-hmm. something. And um, I mean, from the thing that I saw with you, like... There were some very extremely moving pieces, you know. Um, it, so it was similar to what you were doing back then? Yeah, yeah. That was a little different. That one we went to was a little different because they were, like, reading classic poems next oh, to theirs. I see. Oh, right. Ours was, like, all, like, group poems. like. But it was basically, all like... All original work. Yeah, all original work. But it was, like, the same in that we were a bunch of kids competing in a big theater. And it was, like, the... You know, none of us had been to L.A. before. None of us had been on a stage that big before there were celebrities in the audience like Rosario Dawson and Common hosted it Talib Kweli was a judge so it was like this huge deal how did that feel I mean I just like I don't think it's funny because like I'm not and this isn't to like claim I'm better than anyone but like I don't I'm too competitive to like give a fuck about that like I didn't care that Common was there as much I didn't care that we were about to be on TV. Like I wanted to win. Right. Um, I just wanted us to win and it wasn't for HBO. And that's what was weird about it was actually when the HBO thing ended up premiering, I was like a really big part of it. I was featured a lot and that might be because of racism. Like they might've just wanted to feature the white girl, like, which would be weird because it's produced by like a black man. And it's like a very like, spoken word is a very black art form so that would be strange but like i don't know what else to attribute it to right 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 but like um it was actually weird because there was a lot of resentment around that and it was like i didn't have any control over that and actually i didn't really want it like i didn't really want the attention i remember feeling really uncomfortable being in front of a tv camera and i still am so it was kind of weird i just i just wanted to win and i just didn't want to look stupid yeah well i mean and you did right Win? We didn't win. Oh, really? I mean, it didn't end up really mattering who won because it was almost like you won if you made it to the final four. Right. We didn't win. We took third. Um, New York ended up winning that year. So what happens when you come home after something like that? We we took the train home and there were all of our families were waiting there. Um, And what were you, like a senior in high school or something? Yeah, yeah, I just graduated. Um, It was a big deal. We were like hometown celebs. I mean, the next week was the first time I ever got recognized in public. 
some guy came up to me at this place called The Frontier, which is like this 24-hour restaurant in Albuquerque. And he was like, are you, were you on TV for poetry? And I was like, what the fuck? And it was weird because it was like suddenly we were sort of like hometown heroes. Like we would go to house parties and everyone would be like, oh my God, it's the poets. And then we'd like start ciphers and like shred people. Yeah. Really? Yeah. We would like show up and be like, yeah, it's us. And then we, we just like rolled as a posse. Do like, you remember so any of your poems from back then? Yeah, I don't remember any of the words really, but yeah. Because you, you retired them a long time ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I stopped those. Right. Yeah, I'm not going to do any of them. <laughs> no, I, nor was I maybe not going to ask you to do one. But Yeah. So then, okay, so then what do you just, do you make a decision from that point? I mean, or do you just stay in Albuquerque? Like, um, how long, because I know when I, when I met you, which was, um, I, I guess, a couple of years ago now. Mm-hmm. two years ago mm-hmm. um you were in boston but yeah. i mean from there like did you you move from albuquerque to boston right no i moved from albuquerque to new york i lived oh. in new york for five oh, years I see. so okay so then coming back to albuquerque then which you know it's like a pretty unique like city like in america there's mm-hmm. and, and new mexico is a very unique place very beautiful place um what uh so how do you spend your time now like you're like out of high school you have like a little taste of some fame and attention and like people are recognizing you for your work Mm -hmm. but i mean you're all of what 18 at most probably yeah Um, unfortunately during that time in my life i was in a very i don't know if this is something you talk about on the pod but i was in we talk about a lot all types of dark stuff and human things I was in a really sexually abusive relationship with an older guy who was not supportive of my poetry because he was very jealous and it got me a lot of attention. And so actually, it sucks how that taints your memories because when I got back from the youth competition, I remember being so excited and so happy and he had said he was going to be there at the train station and he wasn't. He just didn't show up because he was so like against it all. And I remember like my parents were there and I couldn't even be happy they were there. I was like so upset that he wasn't there. Oh, wow. Which is, I've always been like this clearly. Um, But also he was really terrible and was really like, made me feel so guilty for doing this thing I loved. And so honestly, I spent the next year like really downplaying it and like not wanting to do it because all I associated it with was like, this tension between him and I. Mm. Um, so I spent, What did he do? He was a car mechanic. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and so I just like spent the next year like being in this really possessive, horrible, violent relationship. And it wasn't until I went to college at the University of New Mexico that I started to like feel more independent and make new friends. And then I was just like, one day like I was I'd been at his house for like four days and hadn't spoken to my parents in like four days and my dad left a note on my car which was parked outside of his house and my dad left a note on my car that said please come home and I remember seeing that note and just being like something is fucked up like if your dad has to write a note like that something is really fucked up so I was like all right I gotta get out of this so I just left him and never looked back like I just left him and was like I don't want to be with you anymore and I like didn't even say that to his face I like I think I texted him because I was afraid of him so and then I never saw him again um and I was with him for a year and a half so 
once I got out of that, I remember being like, oh, wow, like I can finally do poetry again. And that's when I started to blossom again. It was like I started to compete at an adult level. I went to the National Poetry Slam for adults and I started to like make a name for myself as an adult in the community. And youth, young poets don't always transition to adult stuff. They're just very different scenes. Yeah, I would imagine. And the content has to be pretty different. The content is different. You get rewarded for different things. Also, like, youth poetry stuff, sometimes it's just an after-school activity or an extracurricular. Right. When you're doing it as an adult, you have, to, you have to have initiative. Like, you have to go, and you have to make it your priority. Yeah. And you're probably working. Like, I was working as a waitress and going to school and doing poems. And so, yeah, getting out of that relationship was like, I was like, oh, this is like what I am meant to do. And that continues to happen. It's like the only thing that's there for me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because it just seems like um, this has been, you know, your career for the last um, 15 years, basically. Yeah. You know, and you're, you're still such a young person that like, this is really just kind of picking up. So, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I'm glad that we're kind of capturing this now at this point in time because you have a new book that just like just came out like a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. Um, but I think that coupled between uh, New American Best Friend, the first one, and Life of the Party, uh, especially this first one, I mean, a lot of the stories from this and the poems and, and kind of essays were seemingly, you know, were... Uh, a lot of them at least were informed from your your childhood and growing up in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. I know that there's probably some exceptions to that, right? Yeah. Um, did you start writing these before this It was even a thought or what? No, New American Best Friend was actually pretty prompted by... I submitted... I had been getting poems on the internet and then I just submitted to their, to Button Poetry's chapbook contest and it wasn't, and you needed poems to submit. I think I submitted 10 poems, but I really didn't think of myself as like a, what I thought at the time as like a page poet, which now I recognize there's like very little distinction between the two. It's between a performing one and the one that writes it down. Yeah. It's just like, there's too much of a, people make too much of a difference. It's like. A page poet is a person who writes their poems on a page. And as soon as you read a poem aloud, it's a spoken word poem. Like, there's too much huh. distinction between the genres, I think. Right. And so, but at the time, I really did make a distinction. I was like, there are people who write their poems and there are people who read their poems. And so it wasn't until getting winning the contest that I was like, oh, I have to write a fucking book. Yeah. And then I, like, really had to learn how to write. Um, another thing that I'm sort of, that's, like, connected to this is that... Um, uh, and I know this has been going on for for decades too. Is is um, how much was like submitting poet uh, poetry that you wrote or pieces that you wrote like to journals or to like I guess more so would be like websites now. Mm-hmm. Like how much was that a part of the whole like repertoire for you? It it wasn't as much for me. It is it was a thing, and it, it arguably is a thing I should have been doing. Uh huh. But um, does it still exist? Yeah, it does. But I also think YouTube functions that way too. Uh-huh. Like, I think having videos on YouTube is a version of having your work in a journal. Really, what it makes is so that your work is like findable. Yeah. Um, and that people can access works of yours that they love and refer back to them. So, like, I never really did the journal thing as much. I did in impo- partially. Because I was like, oh, this is what people are doing. But I just never really, I, I just like, I garnered a fan base from YouTube. So it was like, that's mm. what I did. 
Well, I mean, maybe a broader fan base, but you had already, before YouTube, you'd already been doing it for several years. Right? Yeah, and I got a fan base from the HBO thing, and right. I had a fan base on Tumblr, and I just was like... Oh, were you posting poems on Tumblr? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. I was a teen girl. Yeah. <laughs> Another little, like, thing that I'm trying to understand about, like, this is more applicable to the new book, but where you write, you have a poem that says it's after someone, what does that mean exactly? So after poems are... It's sort of like a shout out to the person that inspired it. And that makes it so like arguably every poem could be an after poem. But well, like, where does that vernacular come from? I don't know where the vernacular comes from, but I know that the line is where if you're like borrowing form or something. Oh, so if I like see. a person invented a form, like a lot, and I didn't invent the ode in any way, but like a lot of people who write odes to like parts of their body will make it after me. Because they heard uh, ode to my bitch face or ode to the word pussy or whatever. And they and that made them want to write an ode. And so if your poem has like reckoning or um, what's the word? Like references to someone else's work in a pretty direct way without plagiarizing, it's good to put after. Yeah. No, I, I, I dig that. I mean, it's just a nod to that person that inspired the work essentially, right? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily like taking from them or something. No, no, no. Ideally, it won't be. Some people use it as a loophole to plagiarize, but hopefully that doesn't happen. Yeah. Like I noticed this one in particular because this is a, obviously a very close contemporary of yours, Melissa. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, in the new book, like yeah. you have this one. Mm -hmm. um, that, And I was just in pick up on it as a I mean actually for 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 your work I mean and, and since we have work in a professional sense um there's certain you know facets of of this of the poetry industry or the culture of like contemporary poetry that I was you know was un simply unfamiliar with um and that there are there is like a kind of like a rule book you mm -hmm. know and it's kind of sort of stringent too at times or there's like kind of like a, a code you yeah know. um would you agree, care to comment um, do, uh, do you agree I, yeah or? of course i agree i mean it's a culture and it's a community and like yeah so there's a lot of rules in the community about like how to interact and there was a lot of rules and slam and there it's a community that's really small yeah. of a lot of people who take their work very seriously and um, yeah, so there's like a lot of different rules that you kind of like as a poet, even if most of your fans aren't poets, like most of my readers aren't poets or they maybe like don't even really read other poetry. They, it might be like totally vague or meaningless to them, but as a poet from this community, it's like, I have to abide by these rules. Yeah. Now, how do you, how does that affect your work? Um, well, I how does it, it inform your work? Uh, maybe it doesn't affect it in a negative way. Or... It's just like I'm always holding two communities. Like, I'm holding a community of people that... That's what's also weird about the poetry community is, like, there are people that you... Like, a lot of these people in the poetry community, like, have known me since I was 17, you know? And, like, some of them I fucked. Some of them... <laughs> I've gotten in fights with right. some of them I was fans of and then we got to know each other and now we hate each other. You know, like there's like these weird, like it's very personal mm -hmm. and then it's also very public. So like, I feel like I'm holding that often. Like I'm holding that this community and I'm holding it as both a community that raised me and a community that I'm indefinitely indebted to. And also a community that I like 
know very well. Yeah. It's, it's, for me, like coming out of a music background and seeing how like the way, you know, there's a lot of similarities to the poetry community and how every individual interacts in different ways. Because certain people, there's a certain hierarchy or certain people are more getting out there more than others. Uh, you know, since hip hop is more my background or, or, or rock bands too, there, there's some parallels, but, but I feel like the, the, since the poetry, the, the basic premise of the work is so personal, mm-hmm. like music stuff, whether it's hip hop or, or rock, anything that's like lyric driven can be, uh, you can really mask that or you can live vicariously through an imaginary story where this nine times out of 10, the writing is really like this happened to me and like I'm I'm going to let you know and, and there very well may be pers- a person in the audience that that's about yeah. or, you know, so it's I can see how, uh, you know, it can be, you know, very, you know, upfront and almost confrontational kind of community at times which which maybe drives the work to be that much better too I don't know. well i think it does i think like it i think it's weird because you're it went from being that i was writing poetry for poets mm-hmm. so i wanted poets to think my work was good which meant which means something very different than well it can mean something very different than writing for an audience of just like the people who you know as your audience so I feel like but also I was writing poetry like you said of like what I was walking into rooms like open mics or slams and it was like oh I'm gonna read this poem tonight because this person is here and I want them to hear it because it's about them you know um and now like my work is not like that at all like now it's like my audience is too big for me to even like that, I like, I don't even, that is crazy to me, you know, like, and so it used to be this like almost personal communication. It like, is like the difference between like, it's like the difference between like, you're like talking shit with your friends at a sleepover to like talking shit in a microphone to like, you know, 500 people. But is it a question of whether your audience, while obviously your audience has grown and is like evolving, but like, I mean, you you yourself are changing with time too. So, yeah. life of the party, which is more like like a rumination on a, like a concept, you know. Yeah, and um, I don't care to like confront people anymore. Like, yeah, I used yeah. to like really want to like like I wanted to make people mad, and I wanted to like no, let them know how they made me feel. And now it's yeah. like I just don't want to write for that anymore. Like that's so not important to me. Like I would. I want to write for myself and I want to write so that girls that are reading it know that they're not alone in the way that they feel. But I right. used to be like, oh, I want to convince men that my experience of the world is real or I want this ex-boyfriend I have to know how he fucked me over. Right. And now it's like I could give two fucks if this person who I wrote this poem about reads it. What I care about is a girl who's probably having the same experience reading this and being like, oh, wow, this is what's happening to me, you know. Sure. Yeah. But if you look back, I mean, obviously a new American best friend, like serves, it's very important book for you. It's your first book, but I mean, there's those, the, the poems that are in there are kind of a mix of, 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 it seems like 
your childhood and then and and making very specific points about certain experiences in your life you know like yeah. alternate universe obviously is like a, a, a very popular one from the book mm-hmm. but i mean um it's very poignantly you know uh posed as far as like what you were just talking about making a certain statement to like kind of a, uh, an anonymous person you know in yeah. a way um even oh to my bitch face too these are yeah. the two more uh, the biggest ones maybe the most viral in a way but i would love if even for a moment to just know like you, what you're um i mean and this is choosing out of like probably 30 plus poems in this first book um if not more um, where you where you were physically like when you were writing those like alternate universe so okay new american best friend came out a year and a half after i'd gotten the book deal for it so oh wow so and some I time had, had passed uh, some time had passed and i had no idea of myself as a writer uh-huh. i knew who i was as a slam poet but that was how I saw myself. Like, again, it was like the people I was performing for were the other people going to open mics. Like, I didn't, mm-hmm. I had no, I didn't understand myself as a person with an audience or as a person with impact. Right. So and your frame of reference is kind of strictly to a spoken word, like community. community. Right. And so I didn't have the audio, I didn't have the framework of like, when you put out a book, like it can get into so many people's hands. So... A year and a half was going by and I was in a really difficult place in my life. And I was really just like, I was in between. I had graduated, just graduated from college. I had just gone on a first like big tour with a collective I was in going to schools, but I was functioning more as an educator. So I was like getting an audience for that, but I wasn't really like my my individual career wasn't really yeah because that's different of what your skill set was super different it was like I was a lecturer almost and then and so it was almost like I forgot that New American Best Friend was even coming out like I stopped thinking about it as I almost was just like whatever man like who the fuck like I guess I have this chapbook coming out and I kept thinking of it as well at least I won't have to sell stapled books anymore at shows right like that's literally what i was thinking was like were you I'm, doing that yeah i was making books at kinko's and i was like at least i don't have to make books at kinko's like that was my only thought mm-hmm. was like at least i don't have to make books at kinko's which is really crazy because i think new american best friend has sold upwards of like fifty thousand copies so like which is crazy for a poetry chat book and to think that before i put that out i was just like i just don't want to staple books together anymore it's yeah like, that's amazing and so alternate universe I wrote in the notes on my phone because Where where were you at? I was living on Long Island. Okay. I had just had a big fallout with my touring partner. I had absolutely no vision for myself as a as anything. Like I was like I don't even know what I'm going to fucking do with my life. Like I graduated college, I'd like I had agreed to go on this tour instead of going abroad instead of being a teacher. And then this big tour and then this collective fell apart. And I was like, dude, like I have literally no purpose. And I was again in a terrible relationship, which are the bullet points to all of my life. And I was grieving this person that didn't love me. And I was truly just like absolutely in shambles. Like I was just like, this is like, and I just had to like, 
get my way out of it. And the only way I could do that was like writing a different world because I knew that it wasn't going to be the world I was living in. So I was like, I just have to imagine what it would be like if I just wasn't phased by this. Mm. What would I do with my time? And it was like, well, I would write a book. I would build myself a desk. I would ride that bicycle that I just bought and haven't ridden once. Right. You know, like I would do all this shit if this person, if I didn't give a fuck what this person thought. I love that part of the poem, the bicycle part where it's like you you. bought a new bike Mm -hmm. and you never rode it Mm because you just like sat inside uh, grieving the loss of this relationship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's a pretty, I think that's a lot of people have, whether it's a bike or not, there's like a thing that they, they had the best intentions in the moment mm-hmm. and then ended up staring at it, you know, yeah. from across the room. Yeah. And never even touching it. And now I ride that bicycle all the time. Oh, that's good. I still have it and I still ride it. Oh, nice. Yeah. And what about Bitch Face? I mean, obviously that was like, that's a huge one. That's a closer. Yeah, Bitch Face was fun. Bitch Face, I wrote after going to a, one of those conferences for the colleges. I was touring colleges and I was going to this thing called NACA, which was... Yes. Yeah, so for pe- yeah, I'm sorry. National Association for Campus Activities. It's like a meat market for college performers. And like you're competing against magicians and right. hypnotists and lecturers and motivational speakers. But really quickly, as a sidebar, I think that the, for people that might be listening to this too, I, I think that might resonate with a certain kind of subsect of artists because it's like... <clears throat> People that have a desire to tour and get booked, but they're not accustomed to the world of playing in clubs or music venues. Yeah. Or, so this is like for some seemingly it's their only option to get in front of an audience is playing at the, the, the cafe on campus at X university in the middle of nowhere, America. And by, and, and NACA serves as a sort of, you know, portal into that world. You know? Yeah. And you can make good money, uh-huh. but you don't really gain an audience because right. it's college students that like have to be there or they're like trying to eat their lunch. Well, yeah. They're like perpetually indifferent. Yeah. They're just like all, there's always these visiting people. So like, uh-huh. yeah, it's fucking weird. Like you're on a tour and like, I remember like people in my life being like, Oh my God, you're touring. Like, and I was like, yeah, to the middle of fucking nowhere to perform for fucking seven people. Mm. Like, and I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life because it's colleges. Right. But like, I have no sense of myself as an artist. I have no sense of myself as a performer. I have no sense of who my fan base is. Like, you know, it was just like weird as fuck. It's a weird ass world and it was not good for my brain. But I wrote Bitch Face because I was at one of those conferences and a guy, a hypnotist on a hoverboard, which is, I think, the worst combination yeah, that you could truly I, ever encounter, I agree with you. Um, came up and was like hitting on me or something. And I and I wasn't interested. And he was like, you you're too pretty to have such a fucking bitch face or something. And oh I was God. like, oh, my God. So I went home and wrote Ode to My Bitch Face. And it was just a really fun poem to write. It's because I just got to be so playful with language. But did that... That term existed, yes? Yeah, it already existed. Sometimes we get a... I think sometimes... That's the other thing I've learned with exposure is like things you say become stamps. Right. Resting bitch face was a thing. Now everyone's like, oh, it's you... Resting bitch face. Like everything... Every time the phrase resting bitch face is mentioned anywhere in public discourse, I am tagged in it. Like someone's hmm. like, oh my God, did you see Scarlett Johansson said in this interview with ETV that she has a resting bitch face? Do you think she heard your poem? And I'm like, no, I didn't even like, 
Well, if you watch that, the actual, the, the probably the viral video of you doing it, you kind of preface it before you get into it. So. Yeah, I'm like, this is what this means. Like, so that was a fun one to write, though. That was really fun. Yeah. I was in a good place in my life when I wrote Bitch Face. I was not in a good place in my life when I wrote Alternate Universe. So then with, I mean, with this book then, with the first one, like, so it sort of crosses a bunch of different periods of your life. Because yeah, you, yeah. Because it's, what's the earliest poem in this? Like, what's the um, first thing that you wrote? Not even if it didn't exist for this specifically meant for this book. Like. The first thing I wrote was, um, was, I think was actually backpedal, which ended oh. up, which weirdly, like, I love backpedal and I wrote backpedal so long ago. Yeah. Um, Were you in Albuquerque? I didn't write it in Albuquerque, but I, it was, I think the first poem I wrote for New American Best Friend, um, or wrote you know, that ended up in New American Best Friend. Um, oh, yeah. That's another live, seeing that one live. Yeah, people pretty... dig that one. So, but now, can we talk about that one for just yeah. a second? Okay. That's pretty true. That story it's is based on a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. Is it one experience or is it like this amalgamation of like a summer or something like that? It's an amalgamation of a summer at this one house. So like... It was, I was 16, I was working as a hostess at this restaurant in Albuquerque at a winery, and the, I became friends with, like, all the busboys. So I was 16, all the busboys were, like, 19 or 20, and they had an apartment, a house down the street, it wasn't an apartment, it was a house that they were renting down the street from this winery. Oh, they all lived there? They all lived there. And I got in with them and was like hooking up with one of them. And like, they were all fucking rappers. And they were like, I know. They were like ciphering all the time. And like, I just thought they were like the shit. And I was like, dude, these guys are the shit. And they like, and we all, we would all just like freestyle and smoke weed and like get really fucked up. And like, I think it was the first time I was ever had access to people who like had their own house. Right. So it was like dope as fuck because I was oh, like, no, I no. could just come here and get wasted and like, but I think it was also the first time I realized that like I was really obsessed with being the only girl in groups because mm-hmm. I was like one of those girls that was like, I'm not like other girls, like, because I was really just competitive and jealous, honestly. So I like preferred to be the only girl. But I learned there at that house that like being the only girl also means that like you are dis- disposable and like at the end of the day, like being the only girl also means you have no allies and you have no one to defend you. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was it was this hard realization that these boys like really didn't have my best interest and that my body was really just like open game. But Mm. then later in the summer, the kid who basically was like the head of the household, the house got broken into, um, and he was shot in the head and killed oh. in the living room. And it was, Jesus. yeah. And it was crazy. Cause it was like, I could have been there. Were you guys still working together during that time? Um, I had just quit. Oh wow. And I had actually quit because I had hooked up with, I was hooking up with one of the guys and I didn't want to have sex with him. And he told the entire restaurant that like, he like, made up this big lie about how I wouldn't have sex with him because, or that he didn't want to have sex with me. Like, because I like, he made up some fucked up lie. He was like, he turned it around. He turned it around and was like, well, I didn't want to fuck her because these things. And 
it was all a lie and it was so embarrassing and I went to work the next day and there were like older girls older waitresses that were like 22 being like hey girl like I just want you to know this guy's like saying this about you and I was so embarrassed and I just felt so like used and and like so shamed for not wanting to have sex with this older guy so I quit the job and stopped going to the house and like right after that it must have been like literally a week um wow he was shot and killed in the living room and and it was like whoa like I could have been there you know and I think it was just this whole real this realization about both what it means to be a girl on my own in a house of men and also what it means to roll in circles where there's like drugs and guns and like that oh, yeah. shit gets really real really fast and yeah. and that it's not it's not a movie you know no 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 there's a there's a few other poems that were sort of in that realm and yeah it was the too. same summer my yeah. 16th summer yeah. was um filled with older men older boys not men they were boys but older boys that were really scary well, i'm glad you got out of it i mean uh relatively unscathed yeah I mean I got out of it unscathed and then I wasn't ever killed um but like you know like me and like me and other girls were you know raped and mm. had to, and had to talk our way out of really scary situations and had to convince boys not to hurt us or or did things that out of obligation because we had because that was the only way out mm. and there were so unscathed in some ways and, and in other ways like definitely not unscathed but just like survived it well i don't mean to minimize it by no, saying no 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 i no 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 i i know i know i know i feel unscathed in a lot of ways for sure well yeah and i mean that was a, that was a while ago so now looking back on it i mean and you've written about it and then have to Here's the thing, too, like to do some of those are your more popular poems is stuff from that period of time too. Mm -hmm. like, do you feel like in the moment on stage when you're delivering that and people are sitting and watching and in fully engaged, like, are you do you relive these moments and stuff like or no. can you detach yourself enough because there's some time has gone by and you're grown from that or. Yeah, now I can detach myself. Um, because I've just done them some of the poems so many times. And sometimes I think when you're a writer, like your life becomes a series of stories that almost everyone, like it feels like everyone has access to them. And so they, in a way, stop being yours and they just start being stories. And like, yeah, but the real, the thing there's is, there's no real. Yeah. And the, you've told me stories that aren't, that aren't creatively written in poems about this period of time, mm -hmm. you know, that are very visceral, you know, yeah. like your race car driving days and shit and mm -hmm. like you know just like this growing up in Albuquerque too it's, it's no joke I mean I don't know I've been there a couple of times but I don't know it that well to know what it was like to you know run yeah. with the, the the people you was running with as well and no it was like really sketchy and like I don't mean to say sketchy like I love Albuquerque but Albuquerque's rough and like mm -hmm. you can choose like if you're a kid who grows up with like private fucking tennis lessons and shit, like you don't have to be in that. But I didn't grow up with that. And it was like, it was like, I wanted to see the world. Like I wanted to feel everything. Like right. I was like, if I have a crush on a boy, like I don't give a fuck if he's 19 and, and sells Coke. Like I'm going to fucking go sell his Coke for him because <laughs> I like him and I want him to like me. Right. And I want to know how you sell Coke. I'm not going to sell Coke, but I want to know. And right. I want to know what a gun feels like. And I want to know 
what that party is about and I want to know where where you're going like it was like when I was 16 I was just like I want to fucking know take me with you yeah. and people would be like no you can't come and I would be like no I want to go you have to take me you uh. know so I would go <laughs> it was like I was yeah. just like no you're not allowed to leave me out of anything like I have to know everything and I feel like it's because I'm a writer I was like I just have to know everything because I have to talk about it later yeah sure I get that part no Another thing is, I don't know how often you write about this, though, but, like, didn't you grow up or spend, like, a long period of time in Trinidad and Tobago or Trinidad? Yeah, so from when I was 10 to 13. Okay, so... And so there's a part of New American Best Friend about that. There's, like, a middle section. It's only three poems. Which ones? Um, it's There's Dry Season. Uh-huh. Um, uh... I mean, not to make you look at it. I'm just no, curious, okay. is this a very... I mean, um, that's how you spent your adolescence, oh. basically. Port of Spain, the only thing I brought from America and dry season uh-huh. are the three poems. Because I did, I spent three years there and it was this deeply pure time and I came back to America and everything got ruined. But What was it like? What, what was that experience like? Um, it was like the best thing that's ever happened to me. And you went with your parents and your, your family went? Yeah, or? my mom studied um, diseases, sexually transmitted diseases. And so... She signed a contract to go there, and she picked up the whole family, and we went, and I was 10. We left at the end of fourth grade and came back in the middle of seventh grade. Whoa. Which is a a crazy difference. difference. And so I came back to America, like, with an accent. Like, I came back to America, like, I don't know what What, America is. What kind of accent is Trinidadian? Trinidadian accent is like... like, patois or something? No, it's like a combination between what most people understand as Caribbean. Uh And also, there's like a very slight, like, East Indian tinge to it. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of East Indians there. So, it's like this very sing-song Caribbean accent. But I had an accent. I was using all the slang. I was listening to dance hall. And I came back, and everyone was, like, listening to, like fucking good charlotte and green day and i was like what the hell is this shit like i had no i felt like so not american like i was like i am not american like i don't know what any of this is well (laughs) so did you go to clubs and stuff like i mean you're pretty young like how were you exposed to the music in trinidad well because of what are called fets like what's that oh it's like a a big party it's a big dance party and there's just dance hall and soca and calypso And it was just like, I mean, think of how America, like think of in America, how kids are exposed to like Drake, like all kids know who Drake is. Like that's dance hall artists in Trinidad. It's like, that's what's on the radio. That's what's in the grocery store. That's what's at parties. Like you don't even have to go to the club. Like that's the music. So that's what you know. And, and similar to America and we have these ways of existing in America. I don't really know, but. Like in Trinidad, I remember being there and being like 11 years old. And I remember being, I was 11 and it was 2002. And I was in my friend's living room and we were watching BET because 2002 was also the time when Dance Hall was on American television because of Sean Paul. Oh, yes. Yeah. And Lumity. Give me the light. Remember Lumity? You wanna know me? You know what I'm talking about? She's got a terrible voice. Just like no, I don't know that record. I mean, I'm sure if I heard it, it's like a pop dance hall. Uh oh. Oh yeah. Yes. She's a horrible singer, but made a hit. Yeah. Um. Anyway, it was like when dance hall was on American television, so we were watching a lot of BET because it was like where you could watch the music videos of these dance hall songs. Kevin Little, Turn Me On, came out, and. 
Um, Egyptian was out. Like, it was a whole thing. It was like the U.S. and the Caribbean for the first time were, like, in musical synchronicity. Synchronicity. So, anyway, Light Glue was on BET. Light Glue by Sean Paul. Come sing for me, baby. You know what I'm talking about. That was on. And I'm, like, sitting on the couch not knowing what to do with myself. And my friend is, like, whining and her brother and her brother's friend are there and they're like dancing and I'm sitting on the couch just like 11 years old, like a child, like not going to move. I'd never danced a day in my life. And my friend's mom was like, you need to learn how to whine. Like you can't live here if you don't know how to whine. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And she was like, okay, well stand up. And she took her son, my friend's brother, and she made me whine on him <laughs> until I knew now, what I was doing. That's now you might have to break that down for people that don't know what that is. Like so, <laughs> pe- there's like if you're from Brooklyn, New York, or if you're from places that have Caribbean populations, yeah. or you go to clubs, or you, you're from there, you know, yeah. or you dated someone that's from there, or you go to dance hall spots, then it's a style of dance with a woman. It's an interaction between a woman and a man, or yeah. whomever. Yeah, um, doesn't have to be a woman and a man, but uh, oftentimes it's that way. Yeah. Where the man is behind the woman and the woman's like sort yeah. of dancing like uh, like in almost front of him. grinding yeah, yeah yeah but with your hips more and a little more rhythm and because it's dance hall you're sort of like moving a little slower and then you might face each other and like the guy's knee might go between your legs yeah they're kind of like interlocked yeah it's very sexual and highly sexual it's highly sexual but in Trinidad like it's not in Trinidad sorry you can like wine with your friend's dad and it's like you it's not a thing like it's not weird it's like that's how you interact by whining you know and so it is sexual but it isn't like i remember sexual in that like you're like so close to someone and if you're like up in a club and you know cats are drinking and they're like yeah 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 it's a different environment but like i remember my trini friend came to the u.s and i was like asking her what she doesn't like about the u.s and she was like, I hate that in the U.S. when you dance with a guy, he asks for your number. And she oh, was like, in Trinidad, like, that doesn't mean you get each other's numbers. Right. Like, it literally doesn't mean anything unless you make it mean something. Like, unless you turn around and look at each other and you're like, are you into this? Okay. In America, it's like, oh, someone whined on me. They want to fuck me. Right. But in Trinidad, it's like, if you want to fuck every person you whined on, like, you'd be fucking everybody. <laughs> so, like... You just so that's why my friend's mom, when I was eleven, taught it to me because it was like you need to learn how to exist here. Yeah. And if you don't whine, like you're not gonna know what to do. Yeah, I mean it's you just know? a part of every, it's a culture, everyday culture. Yeah. It's the dance. Yeah. For so, dance hall. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's cool. That that kind of adds to the flavor of your writing too, you know, because it just is another interesting dimension. I think it's worth talking about because people that may not have that context for your work don't know that that's another like kind of facet when anytime like a young person lives in another country too like and some you know having never been to trinidad and tobago myself or like but i do know some of the hip-hop artists fife from track Hall quest he was from there mm-hmm. and among others and it's there's a flavor that's added so that uh you have that kind of frame of reference is a cool kind of bonus you mm-hmm. know to your work you know yeah i love trinidad i also feel like i hold trinidad like very dear so i don't write about it that much could you was... do poetry there Would yeah there's a yeah there's a really amazing youth poetry scene in trinidad mm-hmm. um so yeah i've always wanted to go back and 
and work there. I do go back to visit, but I would always like to go back to work there. But um, there's a there's a really good youth poetry scene. I don't know that I have big a fan base there. I don't talk about it very publicly because I've I've learned over the years like I've hold what I hold very sacred. Mm-hmm. And Trinidad is something that is very sacred to me because it was this very pure time in my life. I was like young and not yet corrupted. And I what kind of food were you eating there? Um, I was eating all street food. So so what is it? Like doubles is a Trinidadian. What's that? Doubles is a basically curry and like a fry bread. Mm. It's curry chickpeas and a fry bread. Mm-hmm. Um, like in a little paper thing or something. Or? Yeah, they put it in a little paper thing. Uh-huh. You can get them really good doubles in Brooklyn, actually. But um, doubles, um, corn soup is just like a really delicious, like pumpkin, cumin, corn dumplings. Would it be hot or cold? Hot corn okay. soup is hot. Chow is a cold soup. It's mango chow is big. It's like a mango. It's like ceviche basically, but Yum. more soupy. But I remember just like only eating street food and then like whatever my parents would feed me. But mm-hmm. like we never eat at restaurants or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because why would you? Yeah, I don't know. You wouldn't. It's like the best food in the world is like on the savannah, which is like this big park. So Yeah. Cool. Um, well, uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about the new book. Okay. Um, because I, I feel like, uh, you know, I love that it's such a departure from the first one in that it's a much more of a challenge. Yeah. Um, it's a lot more of a, you know, there's a lot more, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It's, it's, there's more, you know, cross backs and stuff. Like if it was like a hiking analogy, I guess that's not good, but it's just a little, de- it's denser, it's darker. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more esoteric. It's more conceptualized. It's less, uh, even though there are like personal, um, there is some confessional stuff. I think that's also just more like psychedelic, like ruminations on like, on murder and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, now that it's out, you know, and like, it's starting to like permeate, uh, you know, what's, how do you reflect on it? Like in a, in the most simple way? Um, life at the party is like, Yeah, it's like what happened when I really started to think of myself as a writer Mm -hmm. instead of thinking of myself as like a YouTube star. I was like not writing for that audience anymore. Like I was like, I'm writing as a writer. I'm writing as an investigator. Like I'm investigating my life and I'm investigating my fears and I'm investigating this culture. Um, And so I gave up any sort of pressure around needing to write poetry that people can fucking embroider onto a throw pillow and was instead like, no, I'm going to write what the fuck I'm curious about. Um, well, and you picked a a subject that, um, for some one reason or another, you know, just, uh, embraced like a generation or was embraced by uh, currently by. Yeah. Cause um, true crime is a big thing right now. It sure is, you know, as dark and macabre as it is, um, with, you know, the advent of the podcast, I mean, and so forth. I mean, and every documentary show on streaming media, like, 
Um, it is uh, it's a gigantic industry. Yeah. But the, the, the angle and the caveat is, is, is um, what exactly, what are we really talking about here? Like, who really is the subject here? Well, I think that I, what I wanted was to put a face, an actual face, and an actual story to this obsession with true crime. Like, when we talk about true crime and we talk about being obsessed with serial killers, like, we are also talking about being obsessed with men who murdered and raped women. Right. Like, when you bring up Ted Bundy at a party, you are not talking about a celebrity. You're talking about a serial rapist, you know? And and so what I wanted to do was be like, look, like, women's lives are affected by this. Like, women's everyday lives are affected. We make so many choices that are based around just the simple preventative care of not being murdered. It's like, right. all right, don't accept a drink that someone pours for you. Put your key between your fingers when you're walking home. In fact, probably don't walk home. Like, even Ubers. Like, don't get in an Uber after a certain time. Always make sure that, like, all of that's about being murdered. Literally all of it. And so it's like, instead of just casually talking about it or being like, man, I love Ted Bundy. It's like, like, I just wanted to, like, put a face to the people we're talking about. Right. To the girls we're talking about, to the actions we're talking about, there are faces behind that, and I'm one of those faces. Now, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, the viewership of, of a lot of this and the listenership of um, of all this true crime stuff, which is largely about white women getting murdered by white men, sure. by and large. White men and women getting murdered, ideally in a true crime scenario, they would want it to be by a man of color. Right, right, right. I understand that that concept, but the, the, before we delve a little bit further into that part of it, um, the audience is—is is it more women than men? Yeah. So true crime is like seventy percent women. And now, what's yet- your what are your thoughts on that? Because obviously, you can't you don't represent every single person, so you mm-hmm. can only speak from your own point of view, right? Well, I think it's complicated because on one hand, if we're just going to talk about gender, which we really can't only ever just talk about gender because race is always involved. But like if we're just going to talk about gender, I think the reason that there's more consumers of true crime that are women is because they know that we know that this is a fear. Mm -hmm. We know that this is a threat. And so you're seeing this thing that has felt very real to you and also very untalked about being talked about. So you're, like, going to consume it like a fucking crazy person. You're like, oh, my God, you mean this thing that I've always been afraid of happening and this thing that I, like, have, like, laid in bed awake at night thinking about is now there's a documentary about it? Oh, my God. Like, there's a documentary about the scariest person I could ever imagine coming across on a street at night? I'm going to fucking watch it because it's this weird form of, like, seeing this thing you thought was irrational, like, given back to you. And... Like, that is why we consume things. We consume things to feel less alone. And I think that's why women consume true crime. Now, there's a lot of white women that consume true crime. And I feel like the reason why white women consume consume true crime is also because I do feel like white women in this country, weirdly enough, are raised to believe that, like, everyone wants to kill them. Mm. Because it's like, you are this commodity, you know? 
because you're you're growing up seeing pictures of white girls gone missing and white blonde pageant queens getting murdered in their basement and you're like oh my god it's gonna happen to me whereas like like for black women it's like the threat is not just a stranger the threat is the police you know the threat is like all this shit that white women deem safe so i feel like in a way it's like with white women it's just like it's this weird like almost like sensationalizing of murder um so I don't know. I want to challenge that too. Yeah, because there's no shortage of these um, exhuming these documentaries, you know. And, and it's not like it's nothing new. I mean, this has been going on for 30 years. Like this style of true crime and unsolved mysteries was a very popular show yeah. for for a reason. Um, yeah, I mean, and it, that's not to say that the book is like solely about that. Like I kind of dig that. Like it actually, it it skirts all over that topic but you still dip into your own thing as well too which which is why i like this like in a way it it, there's a lot more to the book than just like this sort of examination of like of of murders of women and, and true crime and the kind of uh um you know picking apart or 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 analyzing true crime um like even girl you know, is 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 like a kind of a cool bridge between. And I like that that's what you open with too, because it's kind of a bridge between New American Best Friend and this in mm-hmm. a way. If I'm interpreting it the way that I'm, I, but I mean, uh, um, it's kind of a more uh, evolved, you know, take on on maybe some of the stuff you was you were writing, going right into like um, in, into like the meat of it all, but. Again, like, I've only read through this once, so I'm still kind of going through it. I mean, it's bigger. It's twice the size of the last book, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's dope. I would love to, like, pick it apart a little bit if we can. Yeah. Or talk about some, rather, talk about some of them. I mean, another giant one um, that appeared in a lot of your... Uh, um, well, some of the, your classes kind of reappear in this book yeah, as well. Yeah, because the last book was a chapbook, so it's like a mixtape versus an album, sort of. Yeah, because people don't really know that. If you can for a second, can you just explain what that a concept is? A chapbook is like an LP, I guess. Like a chapbook is like a little sample of your work that people can kind of pick up, but then your full length is like really like your album. So, like, you'll see on a lot of people's first albums that there are songs from their LP. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so like that's sort of what a chapbook to a book is. Yeah, cool. Um, uh, with Aline Wuornos. I'm not, did I pronounce her name right? Aileen Wuornos. Yeah. So now she's like, is kind of, a, has like, um, a, uh, you know, a, a, not a sonnet, but like there's like, uh, she's a reoccurring character in this book. Yeah. Um, why just do one uh, piece or like did you how did you come about breaking this into it's four um, I think there's bits? four I really just couldn't stop writing about her so I didn't for think people that don't know like, who that is like can you break it down real quick? yeah so Eileen Warnos is often referred to as like America's most prolific woman serial killer right. she killed seven men by gunshot she was a sex worker she was queer she was a Pisces. Uh-oh. Um, 
water signs. Yeah. So. Where she was in Florida, right? She was in Florida. Right. That's another thing. But the thing about her is like she. For her first murder is like she was defending herself. Like she was a sex worker and like sex workers are raped all the time. It's like a part of the fucking job, you know? And she just popped the fuck off and killed someone. And then I think, I don't know, but I think she realized that she, that was a way to get her power back. And so she did that with seven men. But in an interview, she says, if seven, seven men tried to rape me, so I killed seven men. If a hundred men had tried to rape me, I would have killed a hundred men. Mm. And so in that way, I don't think of her as a serial killer because I think serial killers, what defines a serial killer is not just the number of murders, but the desire behind those murders. And a lot of the time it's like a fetish. That's why serial killers are often known by the method because that method is very close to their hearts and they premeditated it. But I think she was acting out of survival. And that to me is very different than someone like Ted Bundy, who was not acting out of survival. He was acting out of like sexual desire. Yeah. Um, And she wasn't. She was acting out of a woman as a woman who was like, you guys have never fucking done anything for me, but tried to harm me. So fuck you. I'm going to kill you and rob you, which doesn't make it okay, but it complicates her role, I think. Yeah, yeah, and not really, I mean, knowing that, especially because as a, as a sex worker, then she was put in a position where you're already going to be even more vulnerable. It's not like you're getting picked up at a bar or mm-hmm. something like that. She's out there, um, you know, working, mm-hmm. and uh, so any John that she gets is mm-hmm. going to be, a, could possibly be some sort of a, a threat, you know, mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, nevertheless, um, a great device to yeah. work from. Um, because she got the death penalty, right? Or Yeah, so that's the other thing about her is she wasn't just a m- woman who murdered. In my opinion... Oh, it's Echo. There's a dog here. Come here, Echo. Hi, little doggy. Do you miss Tazo? Hi, little dog. Shall we? Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't just a woman who murdered. She was also a murdered woman because she was killed by the state. And that, to me, right. makes her a murdered woman. Right. So she's occupying both roles, which is what makes her really interesting to me. Um, I think uh, with the, the way you sort of open the book with, like, your sort of the preface, not the acknowledgments, but it's like that first... The author's note. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's you opening up about like you know i guess what many people can relate to is self-induced insomnia by watching you know murder shows too often and too late at night yeah and how that couples into this poem oh to my favorite murder yeah um which is kind of uh one of the benchmarks of the book i would imagine can you talk a little bit about that like it happened to me but i think about it all the time right well, I mean, that's what the whole book is about. Yeah. Um, which is why you're also going to be going and performing these poems, too. Yes. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. I mean, um, the last tour was really, you know, a treat to see the, the few shows I got a chance to see and what that audience is like 
and how unique that audience is, you know, comparatively to a lot of things, you know. Yeah. Do you get that sense when you're on stage? Like, when yeah. you look out, mm-hmm. and it's like almost completely female audience? Yeah, it's exciting that people listen to poems the way they listen to music. It's yeah. cool that people know the words. It's cool that, because when I was young, I would have just fucking killed for someone... I would have killed to go see my favorite poet perform in a music venue and buy tickets and wait in the merch line. And I got to do that later, but like it just wasn't as much of a thing. And um, and I just would have killed for that. And also I was kind of the odd one out of my friend group um, for loving poetry so much. So it's cool to see like hordes of people loving poetry. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, even when I'm trying to describe it to people, I think there's still this kind of weird, people have a weird connotation with spoken word, and yeah. it's like they have this nebulous association that they can't even really put the finger on to. Mm-hmm. And um, so I like to see how you're able to kind of cut through a lot of that, these kind of weirdly preconceived notions too. And yeah, well, I think this tour, um, I think people are in for like a really amazing treat. Because this is the first time that you've had um, like a musical accompaniment with you, like um, and Kaylin, that's her name, right? Yeah. So you have like a cellist like backing you up, and I got a little taste of that like when you were uh, in rehearsals, and um, it's really cool. It's like almost like I've never seen anything like it before. It's sort of unprecedented yeah. in form. Yeah. Um, so that's got to feel pretty pretty cool in the moment as you guys are kind of working it out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like she's scoring a movie. It's cool. Yeah. It's like a dream I've always had, so it's dope to make it come to life. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, so after this is all said and done, because this is like a full national tour, like it's a couple of months on the road, a month solid at least. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, what are you working on next? Do you think you'll write another book in the coming year like I know this new one just came out but you know yeah I'm working on a novel a psych- psychological thriller about AIs mm. cool yeah that's my new thing is um like a sort of like a horror novel about I'm ta- I'm thinking of it as like ex machina meets like I don't know friends Okay. It's weird. Hmm. Um, but it's my new thing. And your process for that? It's been really all over the place. I've never written a novel, so I have no idea how to approach it. So I've actually had like several stabs at it that have gone away. Like I've probably I've probably written about a hundred thousand words that cool. not but like none of them are gonna be used. Right. Because right. I've just taken so many I've approached it from so many different um, angles that just ended up not being right. And um, that's the process, so. Well, I mean, to get that far along is a great step to be able to do that much and then cut back and start over. Yeah, every time I try again, it's more clear and easier, and I'm becoming a better writer while I do it. Would you say that's how you write poetry as well? No, 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 no. I write poetry, and I'm like a first draft queen. Uh I'm like, bang it out, and I'm ready. I would think it would be, it's not something that you should overthink. Well, no. I mean, I think everyone has a different writing process. Some people take months to write a poem. I'm just not that patient. Mm-hmm. 
I also wait a long time to write poems. And so I think I'm writing them in my head and in my body. Mm-hmm. And then by the time they come out, it's just like, it feels very fully formed. I've always found your work to be kind of on the hip hop style, hip hop tip. Thanks. I love hip hop. So, okay. What are, like, what kind of hip hop artists? Well, I started getting really into writing again after I was always a writer, but I started getting into it. This is something I left out of my story. I got really into it because I learned who the cunning linguists were. Oh, wow. I would not have thought you would have said that. Yeah. The cunning linguist was stunning English. Right, right. Um, yeah, they were from, they're from like Kentucky or something. Yeah, they're just like Southern rap and their their beats were super instrumental. They used a lot of strings, which I'm obviously have always been drawn to. And their beats were really like ethereal and kind of haunting. And there was a lot of samples. There was a lot of like singing um, but it was also like this like gritty sound and, um, I just remember like, I just hadn't been exposed to hip hop that was that lyrically packed. Uh-huh. And I just was like addicted to the idea of listening to music that was like fully telling a story and the cunning linguist did that. And then from the cunning linguist, I like learned about atmosphere and I learned about brother Ali and I learned about fucking... The Grouch and like you know all the uh, Rhyme Sarah's as a whole and like all the all these like hip hop artists that were like and of course they weren't the first or the only but I just I just hadn't personally been exposed to hip hop that was like hyper lyrical yeah yeah I mean there's a whole they represent like a whole you know, generation of, of very talented writers. And, mm-hmm. and they uh, were really poetry adjacent. Like yeah, Dessa, absolutely. like I was really into Dessa, who was a spoken word poet. Dessa from Doomtree? Yeah. yeah. So Dessa was a spoken word poet, you know? And like, um, what was that other guy that was a... B. Dolan? B. Dolan, yes. Was a spoken word poet. You, you know, know, Sage Francis had his Sage moments. Sage Francis, too. like, and so that was like, I remember just feeling like it was in the Venn diagram of poetry. Right. Um, and so I was just super into that. Yeah, cool. You never really dipped anything older than that? Oh, well, no. Then I then I went back and started good, getting into older stuff. But I'm not like very... Um, like then I went back and was like getting into like Gangstar, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, like one of my faves. But I honestly am not the best about, like, I'm not the best musical researcher. You know when people, like, know everything about a musical group? Like, I just don't, I don't know about that. I'm just like, I like this song or... um, What are you checking for right now? um, Well, I'm on a very heavy Lil' Kim kick. Cool. Because Lil' Kim is another artist that I really just wasn't exposed to, and I feel like I'm now learning about her. I went through a big Remy Ma kick last year right, and dropped. had no idea who Remy Ma was, partially because she was in prison for seven years. Right. But like, I feel like I just was not exposed. Um, in Albuquerque, the big artist that everyone loved was Bone Thugs and Harmony hmm. and Tech Nine. Yeah, yeah. But that makes I, sense. Yeah, Tech Nine is from Kansas City, so he's kind of close. Bone Thugs, yeah, I mean, Bone Thugs is really always... Really West Coast. Yeah, like, I mean, they're from Cleveland, but I mean, they always repped hard in the southwest i could see 
them being huge in New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I just didn't, so that meant I didn't, I wasn't exposed to East Coast rap at all. Right, right. Um, but so anyway, what am I checking for right now, Peter? Yeah. What's Um, something new that you're listening to? Well, let's see. Um, what have I been listening to? I mean, you're about to be on the road for a month, so yeah, you're going to be listening my, to a lot of music, that's for sure. Let me look at my, um, at my Spotify. Hold on, hold on. I mean, a lot's changed since the last tour, so, like, you were listening to certain stuff on the last tour. Last tour, we were listening to, like, Rosalia a lot. Right. Um, this tour, well, I don't know what we're going to be listening to on this tour, um, let me, let me, let me, let, well, you want me to get back to you on that one? Well, wait, I just, I'm looking through my, my, um, my Spotify. Honestly, maybe I've been on a little bit of a musical low. Uh, well, tour is the best time to kind of get back to that. You got some yeah. long drives, you know? Yeah, I might have be on a little bit of a musical low. I feel like I go through heavy phases where I'm like mm-hmm. either wanting to listen to music all the time. I mean, I really did. I, I have to admit it, I really did tear through the new Ariana Grande album. And? I mean, I loved it. I didn't like Sweetener, her second to last yeah. album. I loved Thank You Next, minus some songs. But generally, I loved the narrative arc of Thank You Next. I really identified with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Well, you're touring with some musicians too. I know. Maybe Ari Kai is gonna expose me to some, some some shit. I'm kind of one of those people like, I'll just listen to the same things over and over. Right. Like, what's your comfort like album? Like when you um, need to be comforted by music. Like, is uh, it? Is it Thank You Next? No, God no. Um, I really like After Laughter by Paramore. That came out in 2017. Um, but like some old classics like, um. It's a long pause. I know. I'm like, what do I listen well, to? Well, I'm putting you on the spot. Comfortable. I don't think I'm very much of like a music nerd, but yeah. no, like I love music, but I'm such, I feel like that's why I want to DJ because I'm such a like one track bitch, you know? Yeah. So like, I'm really not an You've been album. talking about this DJ shit for a minute. So what would that even look like? Well, I, here's the thing. I should say, like, maybe I'm a total poser. I'm just not good about albums. Like, I'm really bad at it, which is weird because I'm a reader and I love, like, Cunny Linguist, I feel like, was A Piece of Strange was, like, the first album I got obsessed with. Uh-huh. And then after that, I got obsessed with The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, obviously. Right. right. Um, and then I got obsessed with the Fuji's album. Sure. And those were the ones that I was In just... In that like, order? You found Lauryn Hill's solo album and then went to the Fuji's? Yes. Okay, that's cool. Um, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Fuji's came, came out before out. and then Lauren, but no. I mean, given your the age, Fugees I can came understand. Out later. Nah. Sorry. Really? Yes. <gasps> okay, four, well, well, their first, the Fuji's had two albums out before Lauren Hill's solo album. Okay, well, no. I listened to Lauren Hill's solo album first and then I learned who the That's Fugees cool. Were. I can respect that. that I sounds... thought the Fuji's came out later. No, but I like that that's your version of them exists yeah. like that. That's fine. Okay, so, but I'm, otherwise, like, I'm really, like, not a person that's like, oh, I love this artist, let me go listen to their entire album, which I should do, because that really honors the artist's work. 
Right. So I should have reframed the question and asked like what you're reading then, because you're reading. Yeah, that I can fucking answer in a second. So are you reading anything right now? Yeah, I'm reading like five things right now. What are you reading Um, right, right now in this moment? Well, right now at this moment, I'm reading several books. I'm reading. Um, a book called The Barbarian Days, I think is what it is. It won the Pulitzer. It's about surfing. It's okay. like a memoir about surfing. And then I'm reading The Immortalists, which is a a, no- a novel about a bunch of kids who learn the day they're going to die. And then I um, am reading a different book that I, f- I forget what the actual, I forget what the title is, which I probably means I don't seems like I don't know anything but I am reading it it's about missing women in Tijuana and it's like this oh. epidemiologist who's taught basically arguing that the women who've gone missing that missing women in Tijuana is and is should be classified as an epidemic um I forget what it's called but um those are the books I'm reading cool are you, those are your tour books yeah mm-hmm. awesome Love it. it's a nice mix because it's like one is like a non is like a very like fact heavy researched book. One is a memoir, and then one is like a completely fantastical narrative. Can I make a suggestion? Sure. Um, Kate Kelly barking oh, at sunspots and other poems. My I think, enemy. <laughs> no, shout out, shout out to Kate Kelly wherever I don't you know are. Kate Kelly. Uh, but great poem, poet, you know, great. from the mid eighties. Yeah. Um, anyway. Wait, you had a question about oh DJing. Yeah, so you're trying to break into this. Okay, so here's my here's the thing. Is I feel like the only reason I ever create things is because I need them to exist. Like okay. if like when I wrote New American Best Friend, it was like because I wrote the book that I really wanted to read. Yeah. Like I was like I'm making this so that it because I needed it to exist. Gotcha. My desire to DJ is for the same reason because I have some serious fucking beef with how little dance hall exists in the club in America. And that baffles me because actually, no matter where you are, if you put on dance hall, it's like a fucking hypnosis. Everyone dances. Like it makes you move your body. So the fact that any DJ is out here playing Calvin Harris, like absolutely blows my mind. Of course. Like why are you playing Calvin Harris when you like could literally be playing popcorn and everyone would be dancing, even if it's a room full of people that do not listen to dance hall, like, isn't your goal as a DJ to make people anyway? Um, well, it depends on what part of the country you're in. But even okay, even like in Brooklyn, like even in Brooklyn where there's so many Caribbean people and there's so much Caribbean music, even like finding a dance hall night in Brooklyn is like actually not that easy. There's mm-hmm. like not very many dance hall nights. There's like if comparatively to how many fucking techno nights there are, right. it's insane. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's funny, that trend, uh, especially with like kind of hipster, like the hipster, I hate that word, but like just new school DJs that have embraced like techno from the last 20 years and, and, and minimal house, deep house, all genres that I like, but it's become very trending for one reason or another. Um, but what's on the downward slope is um, really quality new younger dance hall DJs. So yeah. you might have a, a little bit of a of an in if you were to really get your set down, get you know the right kind of selections and know your shit. Um, you know, both new and old because mm-hmm. dance halls not a new genre. No. So you got to be able to. And I know popcorn is a very mainstream new. Reference. Yeah, but popcorn's dope, and and um, popcorn's everywhere, and that's what's sure. like crazy to me is like 
there was this time in America, like I was saying in 2002, when dance hall was like everywhere. Like, right. well, like, you know, it was Sean Paul, but it was still like people yeah, were listening yeah, yeah. to a Caribbean artist. I wouldn't call Sean Paul dance hall, but I guess so. Maybe. But he's dance hall and like. He's just a pop act. But... No, he's not. Yeah, he's yeah, dance yeah, yeah. Hall in no, that... yeah. Well, okay. He's a dance hall artist that had like commercial style hip hop production behind sure, him. Sure, sure. But at He's least not it Beanie was Man like, or no, like no, Ninja no, no, Man no. or but it was like Bounty a, Killer. A Caribbean voice on American radio. Yeah. Which was cool. And like sure. and I feel like I just feel like I wanna throw dance hall parties. That's the only reason I want to be a DJ is so that I can throw the party that I always wanted to be at. Well, I co sign that. I think you should do it. I think that there's there's definitely definitely on the West Coast they are few and far between, which there's really so surprises me. Few and me. far between, which surprises me too. Yeah. You also can't find very good Caribbean food on the West Coast. Well, it's just Jamaicans and Caribbeans went to the East Coast cities. They went to New York City, Toronto, Washington D.C. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's easier to get home to see their families yeah. and stuff. They went to Miami or whatever, mm-hmm. but they did not come to L.A. and. They definitely didn't go to Santa Cruz, I can tell you that. Fuck no, they didn't. Uh, you'd be lucky to get Michael Franti to do a show. I um, literally have not met a single Caribbean person in Santa Cruz. Yeah, well, they don't. There are Actually, none. no. I met a guy who wasn't. It was actually really funny. His friends were from Trinidad, California. <laughs> yeah. And But we didn't know that, so we talked for a whole 20 minutes. Cause no. We, no, we bonded at a party because we were listening to dance hall. We were like... We were like putting the iPhone back and forth, like sharing the Oxford. And we were like whining on each other and having this good old time at this party bonding. And I was like, yeah, I lived in Trinidad. He's like, no way, you lived in Trinidad. All my friends are from Trinidad. And I was like, no fucking way. It's like 20 minutes. And then I said something and he was like, wait, you mean Trinidad in the Caribbean? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, wait, you're way more legit than I I am. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I was talking about Trinidad, California this whole time. Have you ever been to that Trinidad? No, but I guess there's a lot of dance hall in Trinidad, California. Mm, I don't know about all that. I've been there several times. Oh, really? It's in Humboldt County. There's a lot of people... Um, trimming weed and listening to dance hall is there a lot of white people that listen to reggae there it's exclusively white people listening to reggae that sounds like my Um, personal shout out to Humboldt though I mean there aren't all white it's not all white people it's mostly white people yeah, but they do hard. listen. They listen to a lot of dance hall. They don't get a lot of dance. They hall, don't listen to dance hall. They listen to reggae. They listen to reggae, roots, and, and dub, contemporary reggae. I mean, when I lived in Humboldt, Trinidad included, because that's not far, far from where I went to college. Uh, you know, we had lots of um, reggae artists come and perform. Big ones: Ika Mouse, Midnight. Um, I don't even know who they are. They're old school, but they're you would like them. It's a little slower. It's not dance hall. See, I it's like more reggae, roots. but. That's like, yeah. I opened up for Ghetto Youth, which is Damien Marley, Julian Marley, and um, Stephen Marley, which is their hardcore dance hall trio. Yeah, I mean, Damien Marley went fucking hard. Yeah, and I respect him utterly for that. Me too. But, uh, so I anyway. I went to da- the Damien and Marley, Damien Marley and Nas tour. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that was, that was, re- I thought that was a really good joint album. Yeah, I'm glad that that exists. That, that's a good album to exist. I'm, I yeah. support that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was a good whole album I listened to. I need to go back and re-listen to that. It's been a long time, but... Azienta. Uh, is that what it's called? No, I don't even remember uh, what it's called. See, yeah. I know nothing. I need to not ask you about albums and stuff. No, I'm so bad about that. I look like such a fucking poser, which is fucked up. Honestly, I no, just like, people don't be fucking with albums anymore anyway. No, I but I want to because I'm such an advocate for reading books and whole books and I'm such an advocate for like really spending time with the product. And 
I think what it is is that when I one of my symptoms of being really depressed is that I stop listening to music because it doesn't sound like anything to me. Like I cannot feel anything from music when I'm depressed. It just sounds like noise. Mm. So there's entire years of my life I didn't listen to music. Oh, when I'm depressed, that's all I want to do is listen to music. That's dope. I wish With I was headphones like or laying on the floor, staring out the window. See, I can't do that. Mm. Yeah. It's just like, what is this noise in my ear? So I feel like it makes it so that I like have a weird, like a really complicated relationship with music where as soon as I want to listen to music, I just revert back to the same songs because I'm like, this is what I know. Yeah. You know, it's weird. It's fucked up. Well, um, I'm really glad that we could do this. Me too. I've been wanting to record a conversation with you for a long time. I mean, you know, even you have a podcast now. Oh yeah, it's called Say More. Yeah, yeah, no, I love it. I love what you're doing with Melissa. Shout out to Melissa, uh, your partner in the show. Mm-hmm. And um, people can hear your um, podcast. Where Everywhere podcasts are played. Okay, yeah, that's a great tagline. Yeah. Um, and what? Just real quick, what for folks that have never listened to your podcast before? What's that all about? We interview each other and we interview guests about whatever it is they're kind of obsessed with. Oh, okay. Or things they know a lot about. So like a weird job that they had or something that they do really frequently or something. That, what? Why are you rolling your eyes? <laughs> I was not rolling my eyes. You were. You were literally just rolling no, your eyes. No, what happened is you literally looked over at me while I was blinking <laughs> but I for an extended period of time. So. That's so not. <laughs> I was not rolling my eyes. There's yeah. no such thing. As blinking for an extended period of time. That's called closing your eyes. No, I was letting you finish your, your pitch your on your podcast. Your eyes rolled into the back of your head. What the fuck, dude? That's also, that say- plant's going to fall. No, that's it's it's angled at the, you know, it's angled that way. Okay, that's called almost falling. Why do you, it's like, I wasn't rolling my eyes. I was blinking for an extended period of time. That plant's not falling. It's just angled that now, way. This plant over here is going to fall. See that one? That one's not intended to look like that. that this is, the intention with this plant is the, <laughs> the, the, it's supposed to be off to okay. a side like that. So anyway, um, Olivia, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And um, Get tickets to my tour, oliviagawa.com slash tour and buy my book, Life of the Party. Nice. And rep, and if you if you own a label, you should support me because I fund my tours myself. Yeah, everything is totally done independently. Yes. That's pretty good for someone that has a book that's out on a major publishing house right now too. So I gotta commend you. You know, um, you're hardworking. You you know between writing a whole, you know a, a pretty massive book, um, you know you still are able to tour across the world. You're going overseas after this as well. Yeah, I have a tour in the UK. Uh, this is the second time you've been there this year too. Yeah, I know. You I went to India traveling. as well? I went to India. I did a show in Mumbai. And then, yeah. You went to Mexico City I went to Mexico this City. year? I did a show in Mexico City. World tour, baby. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm, uh, before everything and the whole reason why I even reached out to you not just about this podcast because I've known you for a while now is uh, because I'm truly a fan of your work I think you're extremely talented and um, I really think it's going to keep getting better and better so thanks Petey yeah I appreciate you
Yeah, I appreciate you too. Yep. Well, that was my conversation with Olivia Gatwood. Thank you guys for listening. Um, that was a lot more serious than it felt in the moment, but I'm glad that we did it. Uh, pick up our book, Life of the Party. It's out right now. It's great. It's awesome. You can buy wherever you buy books and um, check her out on tour. There's plenty of dates that you can find. OliviaGatwood.com is where you can find them and buy tickets. And catch it while it's like kind of growing and evolving and stuff. I think whatever she does next is probably going to be totally different from what she's doing right now. And uh, yeah, thank you for tuning into the House This Podcast. Please subscribe. If this is your first time uh, listening, go back and check out some of the other episodes. I've been doing the show for three years now. There's a lot of cool stuff that you might like or someone you know might like. So dig into it. And yeah, don't forget to peep out um, Olivia's podcast. And uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I'll catch you guys on the flip side. Listen, I'm going to I'm going to. I'm going to post the audio of one of her most recent poems. This is her performing it. And um, you can get it in the new book as well. So I'm not going to give you any context. I just want you guys to just peep it. Uh, She's a great wordsmith and all that shit. So check it out. Shout out to Olivia Gatwood. Peace, y'all. I'm out of here. I don't think I'll ever not be one. Even when the dozen grays sprouting from my temple take hold and spread like a sterling fungus across my scalp. Even when the skin on my hands is loose as a duvet, draped across my knuckles. Even when I know everything there is to know about heartbreak or envy or the mortality of my parents, I think even then I'll want to be called girl. No matter the mouth it comes from or how they mean it, girl. The curling smoke after a sparkler spatters into dark, girl. Sweet spoon of crystal sugar at the bottom of my coffee, girl. Whole mouth of whipped cream at the birthday party. Say, girl, I think I'll never die. I'll never stop running through sprinklers or climbing out of open windows. I'll never pass up a jar of free dum-dums. I'll never stop ripping out the hangnail with my teeth. I'm a good girl, bad girl, dream girl, sad girl, girl next door sunbathing in the driveway. I want to be them all at once. I want to be all the girls I've ever loved. Mean girls, shy girls, loud girls, my girls, all of us angry on our porches, rolled tobacco resting on our bottom lips. Our bodies are the only things we own. Leave our kids with nothing when we die. We'll still be girls then too. We'll still be pretty, still be loved, still be soft to the touch, pink lip and powdered nose in the casket. A dozen sobbing men in stiff suits yes even then we are girls especially then we are girls silent and dead and still the life of the party thank you it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 